This recording is a Dharma talk given by Ajahn Tanasanti, titled Embracing Fear, Aggression, and Sexuality on the Path to Awakening. It was recorded on the evening of March 2nd, 2010, at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Boulder, Colorado, as part of a weekly meeting of the Insight Meditation Community of Colorado. I'd like to take a few moments to introduce our guest speaker, Ajantana Santi. Uh, she's been a long time a meditation practitioner, practicing for about 30 years, uh, the last 20 of which she's been practicing as a Buddhist nun. She has a special interest in particular areas of practice, uh, awakening compassion, uh, exploring the ways in which the Dharma can be applied to all aspects of life. And she's also um, planning to move to California and to look into creating a community in which lay practitioners and Buddhist monastics practice together. I'm just delighted that you could be with us. Thank you. So thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you, David. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very nice to see everybody here. It's been a few years since I've been back to Boulder. Um, there are a few faces in this group that I remember, a few people that I've seen on retreats, and uh, many of you are uh, friends that I haven't met yet. Who's going to turn up the volume just to talk? So, um, the theme for this evening's talk is embracing fear, um, aggression, and sexuality on the path of awakening. And I remember um, choosing this topic and giving it at a uh, a Colorado college, and a a number of meditators came, and they they couldn't imagine how it would be possible to talk about the topic. (laughs) So, they, they were coming as a kind of a... Um, it was a show, really, just to see how this was actually going to be discussed. I laughed because for me it's an obvious element of our practice that we need to consider and work with. And it was as um, amusing to me that they couldn't imagine it as part of practice as it was for them to think that you could actually talk about it. So we had a nice little time that evening. If we step back for a moment and we just have a, a, a just a brief overview about the point of practice, just 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 consider, you know, for yourselves, why did you come here tonight and why do you practice? So just without me having to say anything, it's important that each of us actually can connect with our own motivation, our own interests, and why we meditate, why we come to a group, why we share the teachings in this way, why do we sit in silence, why do we endure the kinds of things that we need to endure. And for each person, there will be different motivations. It's not like there is a right motivation. Yeah. But it's important that each person can know what their own motivation is. Now, from my own personal experience, for me, one of the things that I found very captivating about the whole of the Buddhist teachings was the possibility of living with compassion and also not suffering. I found them very exciting. Possibilities. (laughs) And as a result of those possibilities, my life has been dedicated for the last 30 years to the fruition, to the realization, to the cultivation and practice of that. 
Now, I know that for many of us, when we come to a meditation center or when we come to a shrine room or when we look at the image of a Buddha, what we see is a very peaceful, or what we experience is something that's very peaceful. And so in seeing the face of a Buddha or the image of a Buddha or coming into a shrine room or a temple, you know, there's a sense that this peacefulness is, is, is what we're interested in cultivating and moving towards. And yet the irony is that in order to get to the peace, we actually have to embrace sometimes things which are not very peaceful. And so a lot of my own personal journey has been walking through territory which hasn't been at all peaceful in order to understand what happens when one faces it, meets it, allows it to arise into awareness, and then sees what happens when it releases. So... Um, this has been a significant part of my own journey. And one of the things that I found really um, curious was, in spite of the fact that I have been meditating for many, many years, it, it took about 20, 20-something years before I could actually even know some of the fear that I was living with. You know, it wasn't even apparent to me. <laughs> And what was required in order for me to be able to open up to things which had been there all the time, only I hadn't seen, was a very deep sense of safety and a deep sense of welcome. And for me, in that particular experience, it took place when I had spent some time in the forced uh, hermitage in Australia. So I, I spent a few years away from the monastic community as a nun, and I was living in a forced hermitage. And I'm somebody who really responds well to um, nature. I feel at home when I'm in the mountains or I'm by trees or by streams or by creatures. You know, it's like, I feel like that's where I belong, you know. And there was something about this land that was so um, welcoming to me. You know, I've certainly been in, you know, many different places in the mountains and different places in wilderness. But this felt like, you know, just this warm cuddle. You know, everything was kind of, I just felt that the land was happy that I was there. And so it was fascinating to me that this experience of welcome and the sense of being part of something that actually felt friendly gave the context and the conditions for being able to open up and explore things that were mind states that were quite um, frightening. And as a result of that, it's given me a lot of appreciation that one of the things that we really need to cultivate in our own practice is a sense of welcome and safety and a sense of uh, okay enoughness that we have the ground to be able to open up to the stuff which is not that. And this also was mirrored for me when I was on a, a journey uh, at another time in Australia. A friend of mine invited me to, um, to the center of the desert, to Uluru. And she was living in a small uh, place called Minmali. And she was working helping the Aboriginal people put their um, news broadcasts and their uh, teaching on media, on radio and on television. And while I was in this village, uh, 
the art director was showing me, you know, some of the things that, that had been happening there. So I don't know if you know anything about the Aborigines in Australia, but it wasn't that long ago. It was like in the 70s or so where this nomadic culture was kind of herded up and plunked into concrete villages and told that they needed to buy food in the store and handle money and, you know, stuff like that. So their whole culture was radically shifted. And the architecture was rather uninspiring. (laughs) Anyway, so this art director had this sense within himself that what he just wanted to do was help these people, and he wasn't sure how, but he thought, well, he'd take one of the community buildings that was around and divide it up into, into sections and hand out each section to one of the families and ask the families to paint it. Okay? Now, for Aboriginal people, painting is not like kindergarten. It's like it connects them to what is their most sacred access to their law to what is most deeply and profoundly important to them. And so I was there as this building was being painted, and there was all kinds of different murals, and the murals were just spectacular. So you're in this concrete city with chain-lit fences around each little house. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of this is this one building, which was a public building, which is beginning to come alive. And come alive with what was the most important, meaningful representation to these people of what their lives were about, what the essence was about, what was most uh, significant to them in their relationship with the land and with something that was bigger. Now, as nomadic people, you know, recycling and trash and garbage, you know, had a totally different kind of meaning than it does when you're plunked into a city. And you're staying in one place. And when I got into this village, I noticed that they had, you know, junk cars and stuff. And there was cans and plastic bags and, you know, everything was all over the place. And the man who was the art director was showing me that, you know, nobody had said anything to this community. But after they started painting this building... And everyone in the village began to relate to the sacredness of their own deepest aspiration. Spontaneously, they started cleaning up the whole place. The junk cars were shifted, the trash was picked up, the yards were raked, the plastic bags were picked out of the fences. Nobody said a word. And for me, there was something about what I was observing, which actually had a very profound impact on me. It's like we need to have access not only to our own goodness, but we need to have access to something which is profound and sacred in order that there's even any capacity to see the trash. Okay? If we don't have that, it's like we don't see it. We're not interested and we don't even want to go there. And so for me in my own life, in my own experience as a practitioner and as a nun, I can see that the efforts to cultivate goodness, the efforts to connect with my own goodness, the efforts to keep a sense of integrity, all create the ground which then makes it possible to begin to touch some of these things which are edgy. You know, they're not so easy. So when we look at, 
you know, the aspiration, the aspiration as a practitioner is to let go of anything which is causing suffering. And certainly experiences of fear and experiences of aggression and sexual desire which is out of control are all places which is really hard. And yet it's essential that we are able to look at them, meet them, and allow the grasping around them to let go. Now, in the same way, you know, I was born in California and I lived a fairly healthy life. I thought I knew a thing or two about life, you know. I thought I knew a thing or two about sexuality. And I thought I knew a thing or two about fear. And what was fascinating to me was was that after coming to the monastery, I was really impressed with how much education I got there, of all places. You know, you think living as a celibate, then your understanding about sexuality would come to an absolute grinding halt. But for me, it was the opposite. And part of the reason why was because as a celibate person, one is committed to living with restraint. And the restraint then creates a context where the energy then intensifies. And living with intensified energy shows and illuminates patterns in the way one relates to energy that one doesn't necessarily see or observe when it's not so intense. So I grew up in, I was 17 when I encountered the Dhamma and was involved in meditating and involved in relationships and involved in all of these things. And for me, it was really, um, I don't know, it was, it was a surprise to me that it was so rare that the topic of sexuality was actually discussed in any kind of meaningful way on a retreat. And I thought, I don't understand. Why, why, isn't, why are people talking about it? It's like this, it seems like... If we don't have an, a healthy relationship with this part of our lives, how is it possible that the rest of our life is going to feel peaceful? And then I remember one of my first meditation teachers had the courage to speak about it, but was speaking about sexuality and sexual relationships in terms of power and dominance. And I thought, well, you know, I was grateful that at least he could, he could broach the topic. But the way he was speaking about it was so foreign to me, I couldn't relate It's like, I didn't know what he was talking about. It wasn't until I came to the monastery where I had more understanding. And part of the reason why was because when one is living as a celibate and this energy intensifies, one can begin to see, or at least in my own personal experience, what I saw was that energy doesn't have a designation to begin with. It's just energy. And then it flows through different channels and pathways according to our own conditioning. And it shifts and changes. So one of the things that uh, it was, it was uh, you know, we did a lot of physical work in the monastery, partly because the monasteries needed it. But it was also somewhat of a joke that when you've got a, a number of celibate men around, you get them digging and shoveling and moving rocks and giving them chainsaws and you know, outlets to release energy. So we could see very easily how sexual energy could shift into other forms. And one of the ways that we would displace it or sublimate it or channel it is through work. 
One of the things that the sisters discovered is, is that also for us, what happens is, is that when we use creativity, when we use devotion, these are also ways that we can channel this energy. So it was fascinating to me to see that it was actually fairly rare that there would be sexual projections onto each other as a monastic. Somehow that was just way too scary. Yeah. But the kind of hostility that would get tossed out would be like, you know, people throwing out hotcakes on the breakfast table. So that was comfortable and somehow that wasn't a taboo. All right. But for me, as a practitioner, it's important that we begin to open up all of what it is that we're experiencing and then start making very clear choices about the way that we're transforming one form of energy into another form of energy that the way we're actually using it is congruent with our value system and not just the response of conditioning and habit and fear. Now, I don't know about you, because I don't know many of you very well, but fear has been a huge topic in my life. And interestingly enough, it hasn't been apparent to me until more recently. So my whole personality structure has been one where I have moved directly into the fear, thinking that I wasn't afraid. But it has taken quite a lot of ground to be able to see that actually I was motivated by fear rather than motivated by fearlessness in doing that. So when one is opening up a topic like fear, one needs to have a way of working with it so that one is not absorbing into it, identifying with it, denying it, or rejecting it. And what one needs is a place of well-being and a sense of confidence that not only is it important to do this, but there's a tremendous freedom that comes when one can. Now, in that time I was living in the bush, I was... I went through a period initially of feeling just tremendous sense of welcome and a sense of, of ease and well-being. And that allowed uh, quite an excavation of my own personal process in a way that was illuminating to me and quite sobering, actually, to have spent 20-something years in meditation and excavate layers that I had absolutely no idea were there. And that allowed me to feel much more confident in my own skin as it were because this fear that had been operating without any conscious awareness had been driving me without me registering the effect that it was having but one of the things that was really fascinating to me was is that before I got to that place of release there was a place of really of being gripped by fear and it wasn't as if anybody was shooting at me. I mean, I had my arms full and I was going to receive my food every day and I go back to my hut and there was no violence around. There was nothing, there was no animosity around. But the, the kind of, I had just a few minutes of contact with people every day for the amount of time it took for me to receive food in my arms bowl. And I remember I would be going back to my little hut, which was a tiny little hut, but I just, it, I just loved it situated in this spectacular beauty, just shaking in my shoes, thinking, you know, give me the strength to get through another day. You know, help me get through another day. It was just so frightening. 
And while I was there, there were a couple of monks who came and visited, and one monk came and visited the elder monk. And I've had a, a, a quite a dramatic story with a bear. And the bear story, you know, a number of people know about. And oftentimes people really get, get kind of, wow, you know, uh, excited by the drama around it. And what was really impressive to me was that the monk who was asking me about this had absolutely no interest in the drama. The only thing that he was interested in is what were the mind states that allowed you to go from absolute terror to an experience of surrender. That was the only thing he was interested in is what was I doing in my meditation. So I explained to him. And through re-remembering, having gone through something that was quite strong, I brought the same qualities into the present experience, even though the reason for the fear was very different. Now, in that earlier experience, what had happened was, is that attention immediately went into a place of awareness of fear. And in awareness of fear, there was joy. There was interest. There was investigation. And there was equanimity. And with these qualities, there was the ability to see the fear and not be identified with the fear and allow the fear to do what it needed to do. And it just evaporated. So I brought these same qualities, these same mind states into the situation in the bush in Australia. And the same thing happened. It evaporated. So what I saw was is the, I was frightened of fear. And the fear of fear was keeping it in place. When I had the confidence to move towards it softly, gently, and open up to it, then it shifted. Now, Anger has also been a topic of mine for years. I mean, I don't know about you folks, but I've had terrible conditioning around anger. And so for me, for many years, I was absolutely terrified to experience it because I felt something horrible would happen. So then I come to a monastery and I'm a Buddhist practitioner and then Buddhist practitioners don't get angry, right? (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things is that we just don't get angry. So... I also had additional kind of stuff to work out about how do you allow the experience of anger into awareness when you're clear that you don't want to act on it. Now, for me, because my conditioning around it was so, um, what's the word? Um, My own patterning around it was very repressive. Then I needed to create special permission for myself to be able to tolerate the feeling arising into conscious awareness. People who are expressive and have no problem at all dumping, then have other things that they need to do in order to create the container that's needed in order to allow this into awareness and reflect on it skillfully. So for me, I remember there was a time when, oh my goodness, quite a few things had happened and I was, the smoke was just coming out of my, I was furious. And I was sitting on a retreat in a three-month retreat period of time in, in, in Switzerland, okay? And it was cold out. I mean, maybe colder than it is here in Colorado. 
And I, I was beside myself, you know, because I was filling up with all this energy and I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just go up into the mountains and I'll make a sacred little ceremony and I'll just, I'll just do something. <laughs> Enough California conditioning in me. <laughs> so I took some incense and I took some candles and, and I was, again, I was quite terrified that to be able to just, um, say some naughty words and throw some rocks was going to have some kind of a horrendous effect. So before I did this, you know, I say, and, and may this be for the benefit of all beings. <laughs> so I, I lit my incense and I put my candles in my little sacred space and I, and I was terrified, you know, absolutely terrified. But I took the rocks and I threw them on the ground and I said my naughty words and, and, and I didn't disappear into the earth and, and I didn't get hit by lightning and in fact it felt quite a lot better to be able to just um, cathart a little bit until the energy had released to enough so that I could pay attention to it without um, absorbing into it yeah mm-hmm. so in my own personal Psychology. I have had to develop certain kinds of tools and ways of giving myself permission to allow things into awareness that my tendency would be to not allow. Okay? One of the things that one needs to remember with these uh, emotions which are difficult for us to um, come to terms with is, is that we have to be able to feel whatever it is that we feel as a bottom line, as ground, okay? And if we're not able to feel whatever it is that we feel, then we need to do special things to support allowing what is into awareness. Now, allowing what is into awareness is categorically different from acting on what is in awareness. And so it really is important that there's a deep and profound appreciation for the precepts and the significance of non-harming. And if one doesn't understand that, then it's difficult to work with this stuff because one transgresses appropriate boundaries of behavior and speech. When that is very clearly understood, that under no circumstances is it, is it acceptable to discharge one's anger with the intention to harm or hurt, then it gives one the confidence to allow these things to arise in the mind. Okay? So fear, well, for me it was quite frightening until I realized that one can actually bring awareness to it without being rattled by it. And when one does that, it can dissolve. With anger, there was a whole process of bringing permission and uh, uh, kind of uh, acceptance to allowing it into awareness itself. And as I said also with sexual desire and sexual energy, that also is a scary topic because the energy is so potent, oftentimes people feel out of control around it. And one of the things that happened for me was I had been living in the monastery for a number of years and it was one of these times where it was just really, really intense. So the intensity of my own system had escalated in a a way where it was it was more strong than I had ever known it to be before. And it happened to be at a time when there was a fella around who seemed to take it quite personally that this was going on for me and wanted to play. 
And so he, he wanted to, to, um, to activate and to, he wanted to have a good time. So I was quite, um, initially quite shaken by that because I thought, I felt it's so, it's such a taboo in a monastery to have any kind of behavior around uh, sexuality that it, it, was, it was scary for me that this was happening. And then I thought, well, you know, I think the problem in this particular situation is my fear. Because my commitment was actually quite solid. And my sense of not wanting to break my precepts was strong. And so I thought, well, what would happen if I imagined the worst possible scenario? Like the most threatening situation or the most difficult situation and I just imagined myself walking through that what would that look like and so for me what that what my imagination led me to was is that uh, the abbot Ajahn Sumedho had brought me and this fellow to this specially designed hut which was which which had no windows you could get out of and a mattress that you couldn't put on its end and a, a door, and he came into the, brought the two of us there, and winked at me, sister, and said, "Enjoy yourself, and we'll see you sometime tomorrow morning." And so it's like he gave me carte blanche permission, and then it was up to me to figure out well, what would I do in that situation. So I exaggerated the situation, made it as threatening as it possibly could be, and then walked myself through it. Now, for me. That was a worthwhile experiment because what happened at the end of it was I wasn't frightened anymore. The energy could be as strong as it, as it wanted to be. It could be through the ceiling. It could be to the moon. And I knew I wasn't going to be moving on my precepts and doing something that was against my conviction and my integrity. And because I had no fear and because it didn't matter that the energy was strong, then again it felt tremendously uh, freeing. The body could do what it needed to do. The energy could do what it needed to do. And I was clear where I was going to be going with all of this stuff. Now, when I mentioned this to some of the monks, their expressions to me were like, that even the thought experiment would be so totally out of their depth they couldn't go there, you know. So I'm not suggesting that this is a practice that other people adopt if it's not something that feels in resonance with them. But what I'm sharing is, is that there are ways of working with these primary emotions which is not based on fear and yet has a lot of integrity. Now, in the last many years, one of the aspects of practice which has opened up is the ability to rest in awareness, to know something is present, to not identify, to not deny, but to see the clarity, almost the luminosity of the awareness as the resting point rather than the object of mind. When one brings difficult mind states to this quality of attention, one doesn't need antidotes or special thought experiments or permission. They are known, they are seen, and they resolve by themselves. There isn't anything to do. 
that is a profound experience of peace. Because I don't have control over what I experience. What I have control over are the choices that I make in relationship to what I experience. And so when things are arising that tend to be on the edge of what I normally consider acceptable or not acceptable, when I'm dealing with the unacceptable categories, then what's really helpful is to have a way of relating to that, embracing that, allowing that, that neither identifies me, absorbs into the mind object, or denies it. And so this ability to see awareness, to rest in awareness itself as the ground, as the safety, then means that whatever arises in the heart and the mind can do. One is clear, one is present, and one is responsive. And it resolves by itself. To me, this is like the sacred art of the Aboriginal people that I saw. Connecting not only with one's own goodness, but connecting with something which is big enough that can embrace everything. Nothing is no longer exempt, out of bounds, unwelcome. And when we live where everything is welcome, what does that feel like? When it's not like we're having to control or to get rid of or to navigate or to make certain things go away or be different or change in order that they accommodate our own identity of who we take ourselves to be. What does that feel like? For me, what it felt like was as I could sit in my own skin. I could relax. I wasn't frightened. I had confidence. I had confidence that even though I had no idea what was around the corner, that I had the resources to be able to work with it. What a relief. So, why do we practice? Why are we here? What are you interested in? And what is the nature of your own experience? And so, it's helpful when the whole of our body, heart, and mind can actually be present. Not just bits of us that we think are Buddhist or should be Buddhist. But when every bit of what we know ourselves to be is present in our meditation, in our practice, and that is what we work with, then the result of that is that every bit of us can experience that sense of peace and freedom and joy that were discussed and read in the, in the recitation this morning and this evening that David offered. So perhaps that is enough for a reflection. If it's useful, make use of it. If it's not useful, let it go. If I speak in a way that goes against your deepest understanding about what the truth is, then at some point, somewhere, contact me and talk about it. It's a privilege to be in a position to share in this way. And it's my intention to speak in a way which is supportive of awakening. And I would like to 
respect that agreement by inviting you to share with me if there's ever a time when whatever I'm saying goes against that. So I think I'll leave it here for now and maybe we can change the format and open it up for questions, for discussions and for comments. Thank you. Yes, please. You said that you spoke to some monks about how the uh, identity of sexuality and they were resistant to hearing about it? No, it was that thought experiment of imagining the worst possible thing. And they they were resistant to hearing about it? Okay. So the question was that she was trying to find out what I had said to the monks that they were resistant about. And what I was saying was, this is that, you know, I, I had, I had shared this thought experiment where it was just in my own mind walking through something that otherwise would have been tremendously threatening. So the question is, were you then um, sort of forced to do this work by yourself if you couldn't share what you were doing and get some um, feedback? These were not my teachers. These were my monk friends. Okay. The monk teachers, they were easier to talk to than some of my monk friends. <laughs> yes, in the back? Yeah, I, I just want to say, first of all, uh, it's refreshing that uh, you have the fearlessness of uh, talking about sexuality. Because I've never uh, had read or heard anybody else, I guess, feel comfortable enough to talk about it and, and talk about it from a personal level. That's, that takes a lot of guts. <laughs> um, and I feel like that's, that's a personal issue with me, too, that so we can resolve that. And, and so this gives me hope that, uh, and, and ways to find, uh, you know, get in touch with that, that area. I appreciate your comments. Thank you. For me, I don't experience it as courage. What I experience it is, is, is that for me, this topic had such huge suffering around it that I couldn't imagine how it couldn't be helpful to talk about it. Yeah. And so I was, my own personal journey required so much work in this area that once I had made a little bit of journey in this, for me it was natural to share that this was part of my journey. It wasn't separate from it. Yeah. Yes, please. In looking at fear, you mentioned that investigation was present and there must have been some concentration there and there was joy also. And then you spoke at length about energy, and all four of those are factors of what um, Would you care to comment on energy as a factor of enlightenment and how you see that as something that is transmuted from sexual energy or different than or channeled? Do you see a distinction between different kinds of energy? Okay. And how does that play out in the factors of the market? 
So the question was, is how, how does energy play out in the factors of enlightenment and how do I experience that in terms of it, its process of transformation? Is that right? Yeah, okay. Um, I experience energy as firstly undesignated. So what I mean by that is, is that, let me use a, an example. If you take a hose when it's not freezing out and you put the water on, the water will just come out of the hose. We all have that experience. If you plug the hose, it will come out any places there are leaks. Okay? We also know that experience. The leaking is, is, is dependent on the places in that in a hose situation of being the, the hose itself being weak or there being a hole or a tear or something. It comes out that way. But it's, it's the same water that comes out in different places. Okay? So one of the things that I experienced in the monastery was the way we can transmute certain forms of energy into other forms of or expressions. So I mentioned how work was one that was often used to discharge or to channel sexual energy. Okay? It can also be used for aggression energy. Okay? This, how this relates to the, eight, to the factors of enlightenment It's an excellent question, and it'll just take me a moment to see if I can wrap my mind around it. When we take the energy of anger, all right, and then we, we release the attachment to it, the aversion to it, and the fear around it, it's a tremendous source of energy. And that energy can be utilized for support, for protection, and for uh, wholesome action. The anger element of it is a designation that comes when the aversion, the attachment, and the fear are around it. So, when we take these primary forms of energy and then we relate to them in terms of being able to identify and allow the attachment, the aversion, and the fear to release, then the energy then comes back more into what I would call, even though I don't know that there's a Buddhist equivalent language to it, a primordial energy. So like sexual energy has, an, has a certain designation or qualities to it, but when we bring it into the body, it ceases to be sexual energy and just becomes life force energy. When we express it through the heart, it's experience of compassion. So it no longer has the same designation, even though the source of energy is coming from the same place. So when we're talking about the factors of enlightenment, and I can't remember all of them because I don't do lists very good, what we're talking about is bringing certain qualities of mind into our ability to be present with what is arising. When fear dissipates, my experiences is either joy or equanimity are naturally there in its place. Okay? So it's not like I had to bring the joy. The joy just came when the fear went away. Okay? So I guess the only thing that I can say is, is that from a practice, practice experience or from a practice perspective is, is that when we attend to what is arising in a skillful way, 
then the result is, is that it opens in a skillful way. And how it all links together and which factors are there and how they work together, I don't have enough. Um, it's not forming in my mind right now. All I can say is, is that I know that the practice works. And I have conviction in that. Yeah. Does that help answer your question? Do you have more questions? Would you agree that one of the functions of energy in concentration is to um, allow insight to arise and that, that may dissolve fetters and hindrances? There's true concentration and energy working together to produce insight or enjoying the resolution or dissolution of fetters and hindrances? I would agree. Yeah. So, um, but I can also see because the this ability for the attention to rest in awareness is not the same kind of concentration when our minds are focused. Okay? And yet the result is liberating. So it's coming from a slightly different pathway and yet the results are are worthwhile. So it is true that when energy and concentration come together that supports the fetters being seen for what they are and having them dissolve. I can also see that when attention rests in awareness, the same thing happens and you don't necessarily have the same configuration of concentration and energy in the same way. Okay? Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, just an observation. I'd like to express my appreciation for how delightfully and playfully you express paradox. Uh, it's something that I do in my own uh, feeble way, where you can take something like uh, the desire to be more joyful, and to be more joyful, you have to go to fearful places, mm-hmm. and I, I find that to be so really delightfully paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, lovely observation. Well, it's um, just a few minutes before nine o'clock now. Um, would it be okay if we close the, this conversation or this discussion and, and I, and I uh, chant the sharing of blessings chant now? Is that good? Yeah. And with any luck, I'll remember it. <laughs> no. Let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May all my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly 
indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the the teachings of the Buddha. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support, through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. So again, I wish to thank David for inviting me, for all of you for your attention and for your practice, for your interest and aspiration in waking up. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.